millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So it's been a long time since we've done a podcast on the very controversial subject of sporting and doping. And uh, not because anything massive has happened in the last uh, while around doping, but uh, there has been a couple of stories that have been floating around in the media over the last uh, sort of year or so that we're going to get stuck into today. But also we're going to talk about some of the funny, strangest, and some of the involvement that Ross in particular has had with athletes that have been caught doping or have had a guilty or have had a positive test and uh, what their excuses are and uh, when they come across to Ross and they ask for your for your help. Um, so as usual, I've got Professor Ross Tucker here with me who's been uh, travelling around Europe over the last couple of weeks, uh, World Rugby Conferences and all that sort of thing. While well, I've, uh, I've been in Germany, we're going to be hopefully doing a podcast um, about my trip to Germany in the next couple of weeks, uh, particularly around the shoe wars which are going on at the moment. We managed to have the chance to speak to some of the big honchos at Adidas in Germany. But uh, Ross, just tell us briefly what you've been doing um, in your various adventures around the world. I was in combination of Cork and Dublin, Ireland, because World Rugby had its quarterly meetings. And as listeners may know, my main job when I'm not podcasting with you (laughs) is to study and support decisions around player welfare for rugby. And as you may know, the sport has a big issue at the moment with concussions. And so the last, I mean, it's been four or five years now, we've tried to change law and change policy around the management and the prevention, the identification, the rehab of concussion. And all of that is kind of converging on on the decision makers at the moment. So we were discussing how do players return to play after a concussion? Do we need to extend that out? How do we individualize that care without compromising its integrity? We are discussing red cards that are given for dangerous play and causing controversy because people don't want their, their fun to be spoiled. Yeah. And we're saying we'd rather protect the head than have the fun. So there's a lot to discuss and I go there and I present to the executive committees and the rugby committees and so on and that's where I've been. And I guess you're presenting the science behind these decisions. So for instance, we know that World Rugby has changed some of the laws around tackling. I mean, we're not going to get stuck mm. into that today, but is it is it having an effect on the amount of injuries in games that, we can, that well, you've seen so far? This is where it's really messy. And I wish I was in a lab and I could control nine out of 10 things, but I'm in the real world where I can control one out of 10 things. So that's a simple question with a very complex answer. Unfortunately, that's the problem. As is all science. Uh, yeah, but this is this is messier than most, you know. So, for instance, we've had COVID, we've had disruption to the competitive schedule. Players have been forced to not train for many months, then mm. play. So, of course, injury risk should go up just from that. We've had law change in addition to coaching type changes, in addition to other law. It's not law change, but off-field sanction changes and educational initiatives all happening at the same time and so how do you ever tease apart 
You know, so for instance, the so game the variables is, have increased essentially. Yeah, there's so many moving parts. <laughs> yeah, and you pull there's one lever noise. and then yeah. something else changes on the other side. For instance, the game is changing. There are more tackles now per minute than there ever have been before. <laughs> so we could be we could be making tackles safer, but you wouldn't see it because there are more of them. Right. So it's anyway. I'm, I know I'm ducking, and I hate ducking answers, but that's <laughs> that's the problem. Is we we. Uh, we're scrambling to try and understand. In principle, what we do is we change a law and we say, right, why are we changing this law? What should we find? But we recognize that there could be secondary consequences. We might find something other than what we intended. And that might be good and it might be bad. So yeah. the search is always to prove whether our intention has been realized and whether we've created something unintended that we didn't want. But actually doing that is very difficult. And I guess a lot of people who listen to this podcast might say, as when I first met you, I thought the same thing. What does a sports scientist actually do? And I guess that's the question. This is a prime example of the stuff that you're constantly having to deal with a moving target that develops mm. as the game develops. And measuring something, you can't do it in a lab because most of the stuff in sport is in a real-world situation where there is lots of noise, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you one example. is Player plays on a Saturday is concussed. That, mm. that diagnosis is only really confirmed on the Monday. At that point, the player enters what's called the general return to play protocol. Now, that's a five-stage, six-stage. The sixth stage is playing again. So if the player moves uninterrupted perfectly through that, they'll play the following weekend. Mm -hmm. If they get stuck, which is to say they have symptoms or they don't recover from one stage to the next, then they miss the next weekend. They can only play the weekend after. So we have been looking into whether that needs to change, You know, asking whether it's fit for purpose. So we have this library of literally thousands of concussions hmm. hundreds of which we also have a return to play date and we start asking okay could we predict what what subtest results because the concussion tests and the, the way it's diagnosed consists of multiple subtests so we ask does the performance of a player in different subtests have a strong predictive value as to when that player will return and if we can find that then we can in a, fen in a sense codify or formalize that we can actually now not just have a generic return to play, we can individualize it and so on. Right. So, so we're mining data all the time and trying to understand what's happening at the moment. If we changed X, Y, and Z, what would the consequences be? How many more players would that delay? How many players would come back early versus late? And so there's actually quite a lot going on. But again, there, over the last four or five years, arguably doctors have become more conservative about how they manage concussions. Yeah. So there's been a trend towards longer time out after concussion anyway. And it's obviously based on some sort of evidence, though. Yeah, evidence plus just awareness, knowledge, you know, the environment that you're in. People mm. are now more aware of concussion and the dangers of early return than ever before. So constantly you, you have this, this, this background influence on return to play. You know, mm. five, six years ago, maybe... 30% of all concussions came back early. Now it's only 20%, and the average time is two days longer. That's not a real finding. It's mm. just a management-induced finding. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And now, on top of that, we're trying to change things now and compare it to the past, but the past was moving. So it's kind of like all the moving parts together make it very difficult to ever pin one thing down. It's, yeah. so, so it's interesting, but it's complex. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to get into a very complex and very interesting topic, and that is the discussion of doping in sports. And we have done podcasts about this in the past, and we've always promised that we don't want to do too many of these because we like to focus on the positive aspects of sports and uh, not just the negative ones. But and and so and because we just don't know. Yes. <laughs> like I mean, if, if, it, it feels back to your whole idea about the fact that there's a moving target, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because I promise, if we knew, we'd do podcasts on this all the time. Yeah. And we'd expose it but do every we, month. We knew what. In other words, we knew exactly if somebody was doping or not. Who, what, when, why, and how. Yeah. Now, if, especially the how. Yes. Because that's what people always ask me. How do they do it? Yes. Because you know it's not clean. Well, this is the question. So this is the nub for me. I've known through my job as editor of Runners World and Bicycling, lots of cyclists. Some of them have been tainted in the past. I've spoke to a lot of reasonably good amateurs that are bordering on professional. And... What I find odd is how easy is it and to get into that game and that temptation of drugs in sport. Like if I take a young promising cyclist who's 20, 19, 20 years old, sitting at a near pro level, just about to go into the sort of continental ranks, maybe on to world two level. Does he think I can't get to the top level unless I'm taking some sort of assistance here? And if he does... How does he get hold of that stuff? Okay. Or and that's the question. Like I right. always ask that question: Is it? I can't walk into the street right now and tell you where I could buy drugs to help my cycling performance at all. So how do they? Yeah. So that's that's what that's part of the paradox, right? The people who know aren't saying, and the people who are saying don't know. But surely they can't be keeping it as quiet as they have well, been. Well, we do know some things. I mean, yeah. you can go on Amazon and order banned substances. Yes, we do know that. Uh, I, in fact, will talk about the Shelby Hulan case in this podcast. I discovered that in the CAS hearing. Literally, the, the Court of Arbitration for Sport hearing tells you how you can buy the substances that would have tested positive the same way Hulan did. Wow, okay. And so it names them in the, in the proceedings. So that's one way. I mean, and if you... I remember a couple of years ago, we, we ran a sports conference here in South Africa. We got David Epstein out as our sort of keynote international speaker. But one of the other sessions was on doping. And there was a guy who used to train at Virgin Active. And he gave a presentation about how he had found and sourced and taken all range of things from insulin all the way to human growth hormone, the usual testosterone, different anabolic steroids. And there's a black market for those things that those individuals know about. Once you fall so into it's kind it, of who you know gets you into that space if you're open to it. You have to be in the space and then you mm. start to discover the contacts for it. But yeah. what you raise is interesting because there's an argument in the team sport world, soccer and football for those in, in the UK, and rugby, where there's... And in fact, even here in South Africa, let me not leave us out of this, the overwhelming majority of doping cases are coming in the amateur game. Yes. And there are very few in the professional game. Now that... The professional game is much more tested than the amateur game. So one of two things is happening. Either either the testing in the professional game isn't catching the dopers, but it is in the amateur game, which is to some degree because of sophistication, mm-hmm. or all these amateurs who dope are doping because they're not very good. And if you were good enough, you wouldn't dope because you'd make it without the drugs, right? Yes. So you've got, to, you've got to actually come up with this argument that almost says, <laughs> you know, they dope till they become good, then they stop. Yeah. Or they dope because they're not good. And the good ones don't need it, so they don't. And that seems incredibly naive to me. So again, I don't know. I don't know what what's happening, by who and how. Because one of the interesting sort of backstories to this is, I remember talking to a very good veteran cyclist about this five or six years ago, and he said that in South Africa, and I'm sure this applies to places around the world, that 
in veteran cycling, where there is very little prize money, there is no professionalism, that the incidence of drug taking, he reckons, was very, very high, mm. purely because of ego. <laughs> in yeah, other words, oh, yeah, guys yeah. wanted to beat their mates on the weekend, therefore they would take drugs that were illegal because they weren't going to get caught, most likely, but they could beat their mates on a Sunday ride, um, even though it meant nothing in the scheme of things. Yeah, that That's an interesting space because it's against the professionalism but it also shows you how tempting those drugs must be for those people who are driven by the need to be better than the other person i suppose we could we could take it and we could package it into the old means motive and opportunity thing you mm. know like for crime that's what they look for yes. so it's the same for doping <laughs> it's true. do you have the means do you have the mo- the motive is ego like you say the means is i'm a wealthy 46 year old professional yeah, i've got friends who've got friends who know doctors so that's the, the the means, and I've got the opportunity. Sorry, the opportunity and the it's means. It's the Icarus story to some extent. Isn't yeah, yeah, it? pretty much. Then, then the other thing in the doping is you've got means, motive, and opportunity on one side, and then in doping you've got anti-doping on the other side. So there's the disincentive. Mm. Is that disincentive large enough? Mm. And I think it's certainly likely, at least in my opinion, that it's not large enough. Yeah. Um, you know, there, and that's for two reasons. One is the probability of being caught is too low. And the sanction when caught is not harsh enough. Mm. So the, the net risk equation is quite favorable for the doper. And so I remember, in fact, um, Michael Shermer, who writes for, I think he used to write for Scientific American, he had a column called The Skeptic, very keen cyclist. He wrote a piece arguing that based on the balance between anti-doping and the, the disincentives created by anti-doping and the incentives for doping, only irrational only an irrational person would not dope. His argument was that it would be rational to dope because... Because the chances you know, of being caught were low. Yeah, and he came up with this argument based on <clears throat> the Nash equilibrium from the beautiful mind with Russell Crowe. And it was a very elegant argument. He basically said, you know, you have this dilemma and if you don't dope and everyone else does, you lose. If you dope and they dope, you're equal. But the chance of being caught's low. And if you dope and they don't dope, you'll win. Mm. So there's no scenario under which you wouldn't dope. Yeah. And uh, that's, I think, the fundamental problem. The, the, the issue, again, though, and coming back to it, is like here in South Africa, you, you've alluded to the vets cycling world. The same is true in the schoolboy world. Mm. We've got a major problem with schoolboy doping. And it's not only rugby. Is that, is that, I was going to say, is it no. mainly rugby? No, the, there's, so there's a researcher in KwaZulu-Natal, Durban, for those who don't know the provinces, called Glenn Hagerman, Dr. Glenn Hagerman, who's done a lot of research. and. He's shown that the major incentives are, of course, sports performance, and it's rugby, it's rowing, track and field, but the other one is aesthetics. Mm. So the drugs are so freely available to these young men who want to look good, which is (laughs) their definition of look good, but they have access. So again, you've got means, motive, opportunity, and drugs are relatively freely available. This doesn't help us understand sport now. Your example of a... A sub-elite pro who's making the step up and enters a team environment. We know how it used to look because Armstrong and Hamilton and Landis and Rasmussen have all told us mm-hmm. is at some point you'd be told you take this and your decision determined your future because if you did, you'd stay a pro. <laughs> if you didn't, you were gone. Go yeah. paint houses, as one famous cyclist said when they caught him. <laughs> so that's the. So yeah. I don't know if that's still the case. I think it's gotten much more sophisticated now. Mm. There was a time in the 90s that I think it was as blunt as that. 
Mm. You know, Vili Foote's book, Breaking the Chain, describes what you can only describe as, as ad lib, ad hoc doping. I mean, that was crazy, just out of control. Mm. Mm. And the doctors actually took, uh, did you ever read that? The, the doctors said, I actually, if we don't intervene here, these guys are going <coughs> to harm themselves. Mm. And so mm. the, the medicalization of doping in the professional sport was actually a safety initiative because the doctors were concerned that without it, these young cyclists would overdo dangerous things so yeah I, I don't know what it looks like now it's arguably more sophisticated than it was back then because the the net got tighter closed in on them but uh, who knows I, I know that you've mentioned in the past that you've had athletes coming to you mm. have been had a positive test and they have asked for you to help them what what form does that take I mean is there is there a presumption on, on their side mostly that they obviously want to prove their innocence yeah yeah, it's it's pretty standard. It's almost like the email has a template that it's written off of. <laughs> is this is who I am? I compete at the following level. X weeks ago, months ago, whatever it is, I had to give a urine sample. I was completely shocked. Couldn't explain it. Um, I'm attaching the results here. I wondered if you might be able to have a look and give me your objective opinion. To be and to be fair to these people, they don't they don't pressure me into supporting them. Of course, that's what they're looking for. You, we all know right. that. And I've never ever made it to, uh, as it were, a trial with them because without exception, I can't find a way out based on the data, you know? So, and, and this, this goes to what happens in these cases is you could well have an innocent athlete who's failed a test because mm -hmm. of a supplement, for instance. We know that supplement contamination is relatively common. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not surprising, perhaps, that athletes use that as the number one reason. You know, when I reply to them and I say, look, these are the things that you might consider looking at, always supplements is number one. Yeah. And almost without exception, they've done that already. And they said, yeah, I took all my supplements and I've sent them to the lab and I've had them tested and, and they couldn't find that drug. Well, then you're, I'm afraid you're out of excuses. <laughs> so you're saying that isn't common then? Well, it hasn't been. It ha so I'll give you a couple of stories. But now, if it isn't common, then is, is it a, in other words, it, is it safe to say that supplements are not normally any, a good enough excuse for positive tests because it's rare that that happens? I, I would say, and I yes, yes, it is rare that it happens. It's the best excuse for an innocent athlete to try and use, mm -hmm. but it's really the, really working. It, really, it will really be effective because it's probably the most common cause for inadvertent doping. But inadvertent doping is probably less common than we might, <laughs> than the athlete wants you to believe, if that yeah. makes sense. So, yeah. And I mean, I don't know the percentage. Again, I don't know. You, know, you can call this podcast, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, so I'll give you one, one example as a sub-elite vet mountain biker. This is exactly the kind of case you were talking about a few mm. minutes ago. Contact me because he's failed a test for a banned anabolic steroid. He's had consultations with other lawyers and he's got some scientists from overseas you've told him what to do and he's going to go and test the supplement but now the problem is he doesn't have that supplement batch that he was taking at the time of the test you know that that powdered whey protein or whatever it was i forget is long gone discarded thrown away recycled whatever that happens to those so types. let's just clarify why why the batch is important versus just getting that product right. off the shelf again so Supplements are manufactured with very little control over the manufacture process. It's not like pharmaceuticals where there's at least some oversight. Mm. So anyone can really, in theory, start a supplement manufacturing company and obtain raw ingredients. They have no control over where those ingredients come from. So 
The same supplier that produces anabolic steroids and pharmaceuticals can also provide the protein base that is used for a whey protein, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and you can look this up, there's a few studies on PubMed, they've randomly taken supplements off the shelves. Uh, I know there was one done in Europe, I think Germany, Belgium, the UK, it's been done here in South Africa. And when you test those supplements, the the prevalence of contamination with banned substances is worryingly high. Mm-hmm. So is the prevalence of contamination with things like a glass and feces. I mean, they, these things contain that as well. And sometimes they don't contain what they're supposed to. So you'll, you'll buy a supplement yeah. that's meant to contain creatine, for instance, and it's nothing but empty powder. So you're effectively placeboing yourself. <laughs> so, so the point is, like, if you if you're going to invest in supplements, this is this is hazardous. Yeah. For you know, the the cost benefit is just mm. no good. So you're talking about this particular so, cyclist then, right? Yeah. So. He, so he's he's long discarded the supplement batch in question. So sorry, key point is that it, because of the way that manufacture works, some batches will be contaminated, some won't. That makes sense, right? So yeah. what you really would need is to certify a batch and say this batch is clean. And there are companies that do that. Informed Sports and Informed Choice <clears throat> offer either certification of a brand or an, and a label or of a specific batch. And I know that some Olympic committees will give their athletes a list of batches that have been approved and so there's a substance let's call it creatine and it's made by company xyz and batch 2022-05-27 is the one that you can use right if you fail a test with that batch the your olympic committee will have your back right if you pass a test if you fail a test having used a batch other than that Afraid you're on your own. That's right. kind of their, their Makes sense. mindset. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so he, he doesn't have the supplement. So he goes to the local pharmacy and he buys up every type of that same supplement that he can find in, in the town. So now he's got dozens of these supplements because he's got to find this banned substance in one of these containers. And sure enough, he does. Like, I couldn't believe it. It was the first time it's ever happened. <laughs> you, said, you told me, yeah, we found it. I was like, Are you, really? You did? He says, yeah, yeah, we, we found it. It's in the supplements. Wow. So they sent the report. The amount of drug in the supplement was so tiny. So it was like, if you didn't send this thing to a sophisticated lab, it would never be detected. Right. It was microscopic levels of the banned substance. Right. And I remember saying to him, I was like, uh, I, I, I'm amazed you found it, but I'm not sure this is going to be enough. And what happened is he appealed his ban, and WADA produced a pharmacologist who basically testified that in order for him to produce in his urine the amount that he did, he would have had to take like gallons and gallons and gallons of this banned substance, uh, of this legal supplement with that contaminant in it. And the consequence was that he lost his appeal and his ban got extended by two years. So, it, so even though he had the positive, the positive test yeah. on the thing, it still wasn't enough. It was to the prove one it. time. It was the one time they actually found it, but it was in. He must have been pretty hopeful. Amounts. Yeah, yeah, he was. He thought he he thought he'd won the case. But the amount wasn't right, so he lost the case and got two years added on. Yeah. Then another case was an athlete who failed a test and blamed his, his housemate, saying that he'd accidentally ingested his housemate's substance and his housemate was using a banned substance. They knew this, but they kept all their stuff separate. But one day in a rush, he drank from the wrong bottle, mm. and that was how he ingested a banned substance. And the housemate testified and wrote a letter of support saying, yeah, this is in fact what happened. <clears throat> so they tested the supplements that this athlete used and the supplements the housemate used. And if ever a story captures supplement use, this is it. 
the athlete supplement contained a banned substance. The houseman supplement, which was meant to contain the banned substance, was clean. <laughs> so, but the other supplement that the housemate was using was contaminated with the thing the athlete eventually failed to test for. Okay. So, like, so he he basically drank A, thinking it was B. Yes. B would have been clean. Mm. A was contaminated with something other than what it contained and didn't contain the banned substance. I mean, it's just, it's like dizzyingly ridiculous how this happens. <laughs> I mean, there are some fantastic examples of very elaborate excuses over the history of doping in the world. I think of Dennis Mitchell back in the days as a sprinter. He claimed that he'd actually had too much beer and sex and therefore his testosterone levels were super high. And there was the double chin treatment that Shane Warne had. He was, I think, caught for a diuretic mm. and then claimed he was taking medication to, to make him look better and to get rid of his double chin. And I think one of the best ones I actually read, I'm just looking it up here, it was um, an NFL player by the name of, uh, here we go, I got it here very quickly. Curly or something you said. Yes, Jeremy Curley. He said it was ghosts that had uh, contaminated his drink and therefore that's the reason why he had tested positive for a banned <laughs> substance back then. So, I mean, there, there, are, there are incredible amount of excuses. Another guy says Melky Cabrera, who was an M, um, um, a, a MLB um, baseball player, he said he was a victim of a fake site that they got his name wrong and uh, he wasn't actually the person that tested positive. So there was all sorts of very interesting yeah. sort of scenarios. So, this. And, and I, I think that what always comes out of this sort of situation is you think one of the tenets of, of doping, and this is what I think a lot of people struggle with, is that when you are when you test positive for a, for a, for a uh, for a banned substance, you are you are guilty until you are proven innocent. Yeah. Which I guess the evidence is in the positive test, but it does feel somewhat difficult. And I always question this when you look at some of the cases we're going to be talking about very shortly, like Shelby Ulan, where there is some doubt, and there is something about the character of that person which seems that it is unlikely that they would have taken something that was illegal, mm. and. As you said right at the start of this discussion, what we would love to know is how many of the cases that are claiming innocence are innocent and how many people are caught unknowingly. So the worst case is you don't want to you don't want to um, you don't want to put somebody to the death penalty if they haven't murdered somebody. I think it's the same case in sport. Mm. Let's just take the take a first step. Somebody tests positive for their A, a sample. What's the next step and how sure can we be that they need to prove their innocence instead of the, the the parties in the World Doping Association need to prove their guilt. Yeah, so you're talking about strict liability. And that's, the, the, that's the legal term. Yeah, and the wording is that the athlete is strictly liable for right. anything that is found in their body. And they have to show if that substance is banned and found in their urine or blood, they have to show that it got there by a means that was entirely accidental and that they've taken every precaution to avoid it. So coming back to the supplements, that list I told you, for instance, if the athlete takes steps to ensure that they're taking a clean batch, then they would have, in theory, passed the strict liability bar or cleared that bar. Right. If they haven't and taken a supplement that's not cleared or didn't at least try to clear it, then they are guilty, even if they are innocent, mm. <laughs> as, as it were, if that makes sense, to use those two words. Yeah. And, because and the positive test is essentially the evidence right. that makes them guilty. So they're, right. they're innocent until proven positive, <laughs> right. and then guilty until proven innocent. Right. And that positive test is the catalyst for the case, right? And then the, then the burden of proof lies with the athlete. The moment the case is open, and that's why 
The first line of defense of athletes is often to try and have the case overturned. Shelby Houlihan tried to do that. She made a claim that the laboratory hadn't followed its own procedures, and the consequence of that is that it shouldn't have been an anti-doping rule violation. It should have just been an atypical finding. <clears throat> had yeah. she won that, then she wouldn't have had the burden of proof on her. But she didn't, so she did. Right? So she, now, now all of a sudden the court is saying, well, it's a, it's a rule violation. You now need to explain it. And it's in the explanation process that you get all those wacky excuses that come yeah. out, right? Yeah. So, so to answer your question, it's necessary because if it, if it didn't look like that, every single positive test, not every single one because the obvious ones might still be winnable, but most, the overwhelming majority of positive tests would be unprovable from the side of the authorities. Right. Because if the burden of proof is not on the athletes, it's got to be on the prosecution right. in this case world anti-doping or the national doping agency or organization so let's say we found that anabolic steroid in my cyclist for example now the south african institute for drug free sport has to prove how it got there and that it was doping yeah it's, it's, it would be it's impossible it, yeah. it would be implausible to me that they would have the resources either financial or manpower to even make a first step in that direction mm. And so as a result, the athlete has liability because if they didn't, their excuse immediately will be, it was an accident. <coughs> and the entire anti-doping system would crumble. So it's, it's unfortunate because, I mean, I spoke earlier of two athletes. That, that cyclist, he could well have been innocent. Yeah. It, might have been, it might have been that the batch he took was contaminated with a really high concentration of the banned substance. He didn't have that batch. He tested another one and coincidentally it had a low amount. Yeah. We don't know what he took at that time. Only he knows that. He wasn't telling. He was adamant of his own innocence, as most are. And I've worked with a couple of others who may well be innocent. But if they can't, if they can't prove it, they're going to be banned. Mm -hmm. And I feel bad sometimes as well. But and I mean, this sounds this sounds cold. But for the <laughs> for the greater good, in a sense, for the for the effectiveness of anti-doping, it kind of has to be that way. Yeah. Um, which is why educating athletes about what they take and trying to avoid those inadvertent doping becomes maybe the, the, the best thing we can do. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do because a few years ago, I remember speaking to a, a top triathlete who took a flu medication with ephedrine in it, only realized after the race that actually he shouldn't have taken mm. that. Um, yes, of course, there is liability and you need to be, as a professional athlete, you need to be aware of these sorts of things. But just looking at what, what, what we know and what you know about the process of doping, is it fair to say that most of the positive cases that we get are probably pretty guilty? Or do you think there is a, a reasonable probability that there, there are people who get caught in the net that are innocent? 
guilty of not being clean. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's an so, interesting. So there's actually three these, levels, yeah. Jared, right? There's there's guilt. There's <laughs> Ricardo, Rico, Veronk, Festina, Armstrong, Landis, Hamilton. Uh, the, yeah, list. Of, okay, let's not get stuck on cycling. Uh, Montgomery, Jones, Chambers, yeah. all these athletes. Yes, guilty. Right. Um, then there's then there's athletes. And I think because of of deliberate doping. Yeah, you and I do think, say that. I do think that's the majority. Yeah, but I think there's a not insignificant number of people who are caught up in the system, as it. And it's it's you see it's wrong to even say caught up almost in the crossfire because mm. they still have a responsibility. Your triathlete, if I if I have flu and I know that I'm in the testing pool and there's a likelihood, however small, that I might be tested. I can't go into a pharmacy and take a drug. It's on me to make sure that I don't do it. Yeah. Now, in that case, if, if that's genuinely the case and he can show that he had flu, he can show the receipt for the drug and, and, mm-hmm. and prove, and, and it's his, if his story is plausible, <clears throat> yeah. then he should get a reduced sanction. But you can't let the guy off because, first of all, he competes with, theoretically, an advantage. <laughs> mm. Whether or not it was deliberately gained or not, he, you know, if a guy takes a shortcut, he gets disqualified. Right. Whether he deliberately took it or not is irrelevant. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think most of them are pro- at the elite level are probably still deliberate, but the number of inadvertent ones is probably higher than we think. Mm. And this is where, you know, it's not. We started this podcast talking about concussion and so on. It's the same philosophical problem we have. Is like, how many concussions would you be prepared to falsely diagnose? Mm-hmm. in order to not miss any. And it's the same question for doping. You, you you phrased it earlier, is would you be prepared to sentence someone to time, or let you use the death penalty, I think. I think so. If you weren't extreme 100% version. sure. So that's an extreme example. <laughs> yes. So obviously the harsher the sanction, the higher the burden, the standard of proof needs yes, to be. Right? Yeah. But that's the question is, how many false positives would you be willing to accept? Because... The more stringent you make it, the more likely you're going to get false positives. The less stringent you make it, the less likely false positives, but you're not going to let dopers go free. In fact, this is one of the main things that limits the effectiveness of the biological passport because you know that premise of the passport is I'm going to measure your blood, Mike Finch's blood, a couple times every few months. We're going to do some some samples and we're going to build, in effect, a a fingerprint, a signature for you of what your blood looks like. Yeah. And if there's a deviation from that range, within a range, that is excessively large, then we're going to say that looks like doping. Explain it, right? Right. The, the reason the biological passport just doesn't catch many people is because they've had to make those ranges so wide. Because if they didn't, innocent people would exceed them quite yeah. often. And it would eventually cripple the system because they'd mm. have all these cases that they'd have to argue scientifically, legally, and spend money It's interesting because I thought the biological passport, particularly in endurance sports and cycling in particular, above all those, had been quite effective um, in the way that it had what people believe is reducing the effects of doping. Right, but now we have to define effective. Yeah. You see, because if if you came into that argument saying effective means eradicating doping, well, sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) Yeah. But if it means constraining the scale of it, then arguably it has. So let's let's take one example is is uh, hematocrit, right? Mm. Hematocrit doesn't vary by more than a few percent. Suddenly yours goes five or six percent. Yeah. Before the biological passport, that was effectively meaningless change. Mm. The biological passport gave it meaning, and that meaning was potential doping, which meant that you could no longer 
have it vary by that much, you know. And they use the off score, the hemoglobin, and the hematocrit mm-hmm. basically, and the reticulocyte percentage. So let's say, let's say your reticulocytes are at one percent. Next day they're at two percent. I'm flagging that. Back in the 1990s, it's not being flagged. Right. So what the what the biological passport did is create a disincentive, and it squeezed down how much I could get away with, which brought microdosing. So there was a action and a response, action every time, right? Yeah. So in that in that regard, it has been effective, but it's not catching people because ideally we'd want to be able to say that even a two percent change from normal is an indication of doping, but we can't because we'd catch every doper, but we'd also catch fifty out of a hundred non-dopers. Yeah. Yeah. So and I guess we, by in the spirit of sport, you you want to catch the least amount of innocent people. Um, exactly. Because, I mean, as we see with most of these cases where people have been caught for doping, that's the end of their careers in many ways. Can be. And now yeah. with a four-year ban, yeah. and if they can't get that reduced, then you're right. They're, they're missing in Olympic Games and four years potentially at peak. Yeah. So it comes down to effectively how well does your test perform. And that's two things. It's sensitivity, as in how many dopers do I catch, and specificity, how many non-dopers do I catch by accident. It's yeah. false positives trade it off against false negatives mm. and mm. that's where and in the next 10 15 years maybe they keep squeezing a little bit further down you know new technologies will make it more likely to catch less likely to catch a false positive so that's where it maybe goes but mm. anyway I, I don't know how we got onto that specific issue but well it's a good it's a good segue into talking a little bit about um, Shelby Houlihan now mm. It is a fascinating case because there are so many, there are stories about what she's claimed, which don't make sense. There are stories that seem plausible, which also don't make sense based on some of the, the tests that she's done. Let's just give a bit of a rundown. So Shelby Houdan, American record holder over 1,500 meters and 5,000 meters, gets caught before the last Olympics. Mm, um, it was in 20, December 2019, I think it was, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. yeah. So she eventually announces 2020. Sorry. So she eventually announces early 2021 that she's been caught and um, she's claiming innocence. She's claiming she eat, she eat a, ate a burrito from a, a food truck, um, mm-hmm. and that was what's called contaminated, um, and it was contaminated with I think it was nandrolone. Nandrolone, yeah. So the substance in the urine yeah. is called 19 NA, yeah. which is That's a metabolite right. of nandrolone. So one of the things nandrolone's broken down into. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know the names of many medicines, but I know Nandrolone pretty well. You do, and but Shelby allegedly didn't. <laughs> I was leading on to that. So <laughs> okay. one of the damning, the damning facts sorry. about Shelby Houlihan, her and her coach both say it on Instagram, they've never heard of Nandrolone, which anybody in sport would probably have a bit of a giggle about that because it is a very common um, doping mm, uh, I bet they substance. W- bet they wish they could take that Yes, back. I'm sure they wish they because could take that, it back. That, that did it is on Instagram. That really did hurt them in the eyes of the exactly the maybe neutral public exactly. Um, so that's what ha- so that's what happens. In the case they come along saying it's contaminated. Just lead us through the rest of that discussion because there's all sorts of appeals that happen with her. Um, that the excuse around the burrito in itself is tenuous because first of all, she's had a burrito which is not a pork burrito. Doesn't. Hasn't well, not it's, beef. It's not beef. Sorry. Yeah. Or yeah. um, well, it yeah. is beef actually. The one that she ordered said it was beef, but the right. but the actual 
substance that could mm. have given the testosterone would have been an uncastrated boar meat. Yes. Second of all, the places that does the food truck, they're not supplied by a farm that deals with uncastrated boars. So again, this all falls apart. Mm-hmm. The second part of this is, is that they do tests on her, hair samples, all that sort of thing. And they don't seem to indicate that there is any drug taking happening at a injection level. So if she wasn't if she wasn't contaminated by the boar meat and she wasn't contaminated enough to be injecting it, how would she get it and mm. why would she do it? Yeah, so there's a lot in that. And by way of background, in November last year, the guys who run Let's Run.com, the Johnson twins, contacted me because the story kept going and going and going because Houlihan, you know, that the test result was announced. Then the court case happened, I think, in May. She mm. was then banned for four years well, yeah, just before the uh, the trials, the rescheduled, uh, yeah, the, the, before the that American came trials, out just yeah. before the trials, mm. um, she was still going to run the trials, didn't in the end, got the ban just before Tokyo, I think, and they, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's incorrect to say that the the Johnsons are still struggling to believe why an athlete would take Nandrolone and to make sense of her argument relative to the World Athletics arguments. So they contacted me to say, would I take a look at it and try and make sense of it? And so I started and I ended up, it ended up becoming a monstrous piece of work. I mean, I wrote, I wrote what was a summary at 9,000 words. Mm-hmm. Is and it I, being published as a book at any point? Well, <laughs> someone can publish the book when they eventually figure out it's what, almost actually, a book. what actually happened. But yeah, the summary was 9,000 words. And then they said, cool, but now we need to do a Q&A. And that was 5,000 words. So there's two pieces that you can read on the interwebs and they are the, the the more technical lengthier document that I in which I literally went systematically through the cast decision which was really difficult to follow at times um, in part because you're dealing with quite technical lab test explanations and cast mixed up some terms mm-hmm. and it made it almightily difficult to follow so I really battled with that and then the Q&A is a little bit more casual and informal so that might be palatable i think i think in the end the pair of them is it's quite a good combination and the, and the let's run guys should be complimented for doing it i think it's pretty cool so what was complicated about it explain so, explain why that why the, what, so before what we even were. get before we even get to the the Houlihan explanation about the pork burrito there's a whole detailed in-depth thing about the lab test and did the laboratory follow its own procedures i alluded to that earlier in this podcast Houlihan effectively claims that the concentration so 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 right so so they test the urine and they find 19 na okay now the question is does that 19 na come from a banned drug that i've injected or ingested or does it come from a food source that i've ingested if it's a food source i'm innocent if it's a pull or an injection of course then i'm guilty right so the, the the lab now has to first identify whether it is likely to be food or which we can call endogenous, endo meaning inside the body. Right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, endogenous to a pig <laughs> or endogenous to Houlihan herself, because that can also happen. Or is it exogenous, which for the, this conversation we'll use as doping. Does this make sense? Yep. So far? Yep. Now, the way they do that is two things. One is the concentration. If it's, if it's a, and I've never fully agreed with this, but in principle, if the concentration is high, it's more likely to suggest doping. If the concentration is low, it's more likely food. Now, the reason I don't necessarily agree is because if I ate something tonight and was tested first thing tomorrow morning, it's possible it was high purely because of the timing. Mm. So the amount that I end up peeing out (laughs) Mm. is a function of two things, how much went in 
and how long ago did it go in? Yeah. So I've never fully understood how they can be that confident that low concentration implies mm. food. To me, Sounds it like could a broad, be, broad strokes kind yeah. of. To me, yeah. and this has happened a few times actually with a diff- various different drugs. Is if I if I took a large amount for doping a week ago and got tested in two weeks, which the amount would be low. Mm. Doesn't support a food argument. Anyways, point is. She's tested the morning after the burrito, so in theory her concentration will be really low. And also the type of 19NA, because there are sophisticated lab tests called GC-ERMS, as gas chromatography, which is used to determine something called the carbon isotope ratio, which is, think of it as a, fi- as a fingerprint or a signature of the carbon in that molecule. That can be used to distinguish between a 19NA that came from a synthetic source drug as opposed to one that came from a food source. Wow. So the laboratory is compelled to ask questions of those two things, the level, concentration, and the type. And Houlihan's argument is that her level and her type would have compelled the lab to follow up with more detailed testing called a pharmacokinetic test. (laughs) The lab's argument is that Her concentration, yes, falls in the range that looks vague, but her type was clearly different from what would be expected from ingested food. So there was a dispute around the the carbon isotope ratio, if that makes sense. Now, she challenged that, as I mentioned earlier, because had the lab failed to follow its own proceedings, or sorry, let me rephrase that, had the lab followed its own proceedings, they would have issued an atypical finding, which would not have then opened up a case. Right. And they would have followed it up with pharmacokinetic testing. And what a pharmacokinetic test does is asks the athlete to try and recreate the positive test. Mm-hmm. In other words, Houlihan would, and this is where the Let's Run guys and I got into it a lot in the Q&A. What would Houlihan have to do? She'd have to go and eat pork burritos, provide a urine sample, and fail the test a second time. Yeah. If she could do that, then she could go to the lab and say, look, that must have been the source. That's what happens. But the initial testing was showing that it wasn't a food source, it was a synthetic right. source. Right, and the way they right. do that is that they, they obtain other steroids from Houlihan's body and they work out the carbon isotope ratio of those endogenous steroids. They call them reference compounds. And they compare those reference compounds to the 19NA. And if that difference between Houlihan's reference compound and the banned substance, the 19NA, is large enough then they exclude the possibility of a food source and they instead issue a doping violation. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. And, and so... That's quite damning, though. I mean, it, <coughs> it basically makes her excuse... It, it, puts, it, put, it costs a lot of doubt over the food excuse, quite simply. Yes, it does, because it, it effectively makes it implausible. Right. It's, it's not supported by any lab analysis. Right. Because now what she's got to do is she's got to show that... And, and again, this is where it gets technical and doesn't lend itself to a podcast, but the difference between reference compound and the 19NA, if that's smaller than three, then the lab would consider it plausibly from food and follow up with pharmacokinetic tests. If it's greater than three parts per mil, then it's not food. And hers was 3.8. Now she could, in theory, have tried to show that the pig meat could have had a carbon isotope ratio that was a little bit higher and Mm. therefore closer to what was in her urine, but she wasn't able to do that. So so her her defense, the very first play she makes, you know, the first card she played in this court case ends up coming up negative for her. Mm. And it it comes about 
excuse me, this is where it got so complex to try and understand, because it seemed to me that Houlihan and her team misunderstood the technical document. Mm. And they, they were using her actual isotope signature instead of the difference between them. And so when you read it, <coughs> you'll see all kinds of reference to the delta carbon values, and then there's a delta delta carbon reference value and so forth. And the, the CAS decision muddles those up. And that's why it <laughs> took me a long time to untangle that. But the short answer is that she plays this card. Yeah. She loses. And the court actually says, not only did the lab follow its own procedures, they were compelled to tell you that it was an anti-doping rule violation. They had to do it based mm-hmm. on your, your analytical result. And therefore, it's an anti-doping rule violation. And therefore, you have the burden of proof and you have the standard of proof. Yeah. And the, the standard of proof in a, in a case like this specifically is, uh, let me just find exactly what the wording is. It, need, it needs to be more probable than their non-occurrence. Right. So now the focus turns to Houlihan's explanation, and she has to convince that CAS panel that the burrito story is more plausible than its non-occurrence. So she's got to convince them that she ate a burrito. Easy enough. You've got to convince them that it was a pork burrito even though she'd ordered beef. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a little implausible, but can happen. Yeah. It's the so same, you've got to convince the same them counter. that that pork burrito was from an uncastrated, was from an uncastrated boar. But now... And this is where I don't want to go into massive detail. Uncastrated boars don't enter the food chain in the U.S. There are checks and balances. So therefore, it had to have had undescended testes. It has to be what's called the crypt orchid species. Then she has to have eaten enough of that. She has to have eaten the right parts of the pig because the stomach, which she claimed she ate, has got very low levels of nandrolone. Had she claimed the kidney and liver, it would have been much higher. Maybe her argument would have been a little bit stronger. Mm. And so... One argument after the next, she just gets dismissed. And so circumstantially, things are not looking good for her at this point. Y- yeah, actually. And, yeah. and so, so the only thing she wins is, yes, you ate a burrito, and yes, it was a pork burrito. Yeah. Thereafter, and, and when you read the cast decision on this part, it's actually quite good. It makes a good story because mm. they've, they've told it in the order of things that would have to go. And so there are subheadings. Is, Did the athlete eat a contaminated burrito? Did the athlete eat a pork burrito? Did the athlete eat a pork burrito from cryptorchid species? And so on and so on and so on. Yeah. So you can see the arguments evolving. And Cass dismissed them quite strongly. You know, the language at the end of each section is, it is highly implausible. On the balance of probabilities, it is unlikely the athlete did this or that and so on. Yeah. So by the time you get through that argument, and, and mm. Water brings an expert with a guy called John McGlone, who's a professor of agriculture in Texas, and he's, he's really the star of the show in this area for them. And the most interesting thing I thought was that Houlihan didn't offer a counter-expert. She had analytical chemists talking about the tests and the lab and the concentration but she was she was never able to offer anything in support of her argument that nandrolone in meat could have found its way into that burrito so mcglone went uncontested and you see that in the in the decision they keep saying you know um professor mcglone's evidence was uncontested there was no contested the the points made by mcglone were uncontested they say this over and over and over and i think that was telling so, so the interesting now this event becomes very interesting because if you assume that that she was evidence points to the fact that it wasn't the food, then you're suggesting then the synthetic drug got in there deliberately. But other tests that came out of this, including hair samples, show that there was no anandrolone in those hair samples and other tests which they described, I think, in the report, which 
again, is against what you would expect somebody who is taking something synthetically. Mm. And the most interesting thing in the whole document was was to what. So the way it works at CAS, by the way, and I, I, I learned this through the Semenya thing, is that they, you have your three panelists, think of them as three judges, that's who you're trying to win over. Yeah. And then the two parties are on opposite side of the room. And when it's a technical issue like this, the two parties' experts come forward at the same time and they basically have a debate in front of the judges. They call them hot tubs, which is, sounds way sexier than it is. <laughs> but uh, so, so for instance, in the Castus and Mania trial, I was in a hot tub about what is the effect of testosterone on performance. And it was me on one side and another expert on the other. Um, in this case, there would have been a hot tub on was the nandrolone concentration in Houlihan's urine high enough to have been from, uh, sorry, low enough to have been from food or can it only be doping? <clears throat> yeah. And they debate this. And so when it comes up as a summary, it's kind of, it's kind of not told in order that it happens. But the point is, that Ayotte, in her, so World Anti-Doping has an expert called Professor Christine Ayotte, who's probably one of the world authorities on nandrolone doping cases. And she talks about in one section that when you do that carbon isotope ratio for nandrolone, what they've started to notice in the last five or six years is the emergence of two very distinct clusters in doping cases. So remember that the carbon isotope ratio tells you the source. It's a fingerprint that effectively can be related to the source. She talks about one cluster with a very high ratio of about 29 parts per million, which they believe to be injected nandrolone. And then she talks about another cluster at around negative 23, which she calls pseudo-exogenous in origin. So that means, sorry, pseudo-endogenous, which means not made by the athlete's body, but not injected exogenously either, right? And Houlihan's carbon isotope ratio is bang in that range of 23. Right. And Ayat is then obviously, you can imagine being asked, well, what might that come from? And oh, that's this, the question. <laughs> and there's the statement in the decision, which is the closest I think you'll ever see to World Athletics actually saying what they think happened. And Ayat says that that negative 23 corresponds almost exactly to what you'd get if you took oral precursors of nandrolone. Precursors meaning tablets? Pre- Oral meaning tablets mm, and precursor pre- meaning a substance, a tablet that contains the building blocks ah. or the materials that would then be used to make nandrolone by the body. Right. So she lists so two. A, 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 nandro- a sort of a nandrolone stimulant of sorts. Yeah, right. effectively, like a nandrolone yeah. ingredient. Right. So you're giving the body the ingredient and the body's going to cook up the nandrolone okay. for itself. Can I do that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, t- many testosterone positive cases are found as a consequence of testosterone precursor. So instead of taking testosterone, I take one of the many building block components of testosterone. Which then stimulates the the production of testosterone. Yeah. I didn't know that. There are legal supplements that claim to do that So nandrolone actually sits sits naturally in your body under the right circumstances. In very low doses, which is why one of the first things they rule out in positive cases is pregnancy. Right. Because it can be elevated in, in pregnant women. Okay. So when you read their technical document, they have, okay. what should the lab do if it's a male athlete with this? Mm. If it's a female athlete who's pregnant? If it's a female athlete who's not? And that, right. this is what applied to So I never knew what a precursor was right. until today. So now, so now uh, you At least I've learned something. Yeah, so Ayat actually says, and she literally says, and I mentioned this earlier, that you can go on Amazon and you can buy these precursors. And she lists two examples. The one was called... Uh, 19-Nord DHEA, and the other one's called Andromax, which I did. I went on and I found them on Amazon. On Amazon. So and you can sure buy them wherever you are in the world. Yeah. Now, 
I'm not saying that's what Houlihan sure. did, but it's quite clear that's what the world athletics expert believed that was the case because she was very clear. She said there are these two distinct clusters. One is very high, one is around 23, and that's exactly where Houlihan's was. Wow. And so that's the argument, which then... The argument being that she took it orally. Yeah, so it would have been an oral <coughs> precursor of... I have another question once you've finished what you So for instance, I, once, when I was once in Boulder, Colorado, and I went into... They've got these places called vitamin shops, which is a giant supplement shop. And you can buy DHEA on the shelves. Hmm. It's a banned substance. There have been sprinters fail tests for DHEA because it too, is, that's a precursor of testosterone, but also nandrolone. Why would so, you take it anyway? For the same benefit as testosterone, recovery, anabolic support. So if you're a non-competitive athlete and you're just working at the gym, you would take that? Yeah, exactly. So you can buy DHEA off the shelf. You can't do it in this country, but in the mm. US it's, it's yeah. possible. So anyway, so the world athletics seem to imply. Now, again, it's not up to them to prove this. It's up to Shelby Hulan to prove what it's not. But that, that paragraph struck me because I thought this is unusual we never we never see what they think happened but this told us what they thought and then it then it comes up again later because they're discussing the hair sample analysis and it turned out when they did the hair sample analysis of Houlihan they didn't look for the precursors they only looked for nandrolone and so they didn't find it but the court basically says well you didn't look for the thing it should have been which is again surprising because in the process of leading up to Cass the two parties have to share with one another all their material, yeah, all the evidence. <coughs> so yeah. I find it difficult to imagine that Houlihan's team didn't know about the precursor concept and therefore why they didn't go about testing for it. But they, but they didn't, and so, yeah, she, she couldn't. So the question that has been raised in a couple of stories that I read about this is that if she was taking it orally as a, as a precursor, was it enough to actually give her any benefit at all? In other words, you know, yeah. when we inject an angelone or, it's, or, I mean, I assume you can do the precursor as an, as an injection as well, then obviously the benefit is significant and therefore you can see a performance improvement. But is there a performance improvement by taking it in that, in that relatively low levels? Because that was the question that people asked. Why would you <coughs> take it in low levels if it wasn't actually going to benefit her? Well, you wouldn't. So let's let's turn around the other way. You wouldn't take it in high levels because if you inject it and it is in present in your body in high levels, you're definitely going to go down. Right. So you take it in low levels because you're trading off. And I'm not saying she's doing this. I'm mm. saying in general, athletes take low levels because it's all they can. Right. So necessity drives the level. You so can even take. if it's giving them a slight improvement in performance, it's and still that's, worth that's it. That's microdosing. So <laughs> yeah. I would love to take ten milligrams, but I can't. I can only get away with two. That means I'm going to get less effect, but at least I'm not getting caught. So you're trading off always the risk of detection against the benefits of taking it. Mm -hmm. That's the case for any drug. And I've long since given up trying to rationally understand whether athletes take drugs knowing they'll work or not. I think they take things. I mean, you, I remember we did some work with cyclists, uh, elite cyclists, and they did everything possible to boost their blood carrying their oxygen carrying capacity mm. they had altitude tents they're going to altitude camps they're still using epo now we know that the, the effect of sleeping in an altitude tent back then this is the early 2000s was trivial compared to epo but they'll do it <laughs> because i think the mindset is do everything i can right and so that's why athletes will take drugs without proven benefits because there's a possibility that they work as long as the risk of being caught's not that high i'm still going to try this 
if that makes sense. And I guess at the top level, and, half a percent is the difference between a win and a loss. Right, and it might mm. be one element of five or six different things, mm. five of which might be legal, one of which is not. You've got your supplement cocktail, and you've got your DHEA sitting on your kitchen counter every mm. morning, and you mm. take those five things, because you believe that that combination is going to make enough of a difference to allow me to train a little bit harder today, recover a little bit faster tomorrow. Mm. And you'd be actually, just as a, just take one step back, you'd be amazed how little evidence there is for most of the stuff on the band list. I mean, testosterone, growth hormone, obviously work. Even EPO is contested. There's a group in Holland that came out with a paper two or three years ago where they tested guys either on placebo or EPO and found no effect on performance and concluded EPO has no benefit. <laughs> yeah. We know it works because it wouldn't It's be- like the caffeine story of the early 2000s. Caffeine <laughs> was banned and um, Lana Mayo, in fact, was, That's right. was almost cuffed for taking caffeine and then it was taken off the list. Yeah, and everyone took it instantly. It's like I remember hearing stories about caffeine reactions at halftime in change rooms of team sports <clears throat> because yeah. guys were taking it. They were getting the sh- shudders and jitters and stomach issues and all sorts of problems because they'll do anything yeah. because they will do anything and mm. caffeine's the same like the evidence on caffeine and performance enhancement is mm. not very strong much less likely to work for instance than EPO and so on so most of the banned substances don't have evidence and I dare say nor, um, 19NA or Nandrolone as it's, as it's mm. um, origin is the same but they take it because they hope it does <laughs> and I guess to some extent even if it doesn't there's a placebo effect thinking that it might do which actually might help right. you in the end anyway exactly yeah. Yeah. exactly so yeah i i don't sure. know and i mean i remember david epstein said the same i think you saw a piece in which he was quoted malcolm gladwell was surprised that an athlete with Hulahan's profile and resources would take something as basic as nandrolone but mm-hmm. when you read the the oral precursor theory yeah. Then it starts to make, ma- it doesn't make sense. It's the most plausible. It, yeah, suddenly you start to say, actually, mm. it's not implausible that this athlete would have taken mm. it as, as a consequence of something else they were taking. And that yeah. we know happens all the time. Yeah. So that's the, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the, the likeliest. Guarantee you that when Houlihan failed, the, f- the first test result comes to the A sample, she's testing the supplements. Like, uh, they've yeah. said that they did in response to my article. The let's run guys say no, they, they did claim that they tested the supplements and couldn't find it. And that's why she landed on the mm. on the pork burrito defense, is because she had to say something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, she has protested her innocence, you know, loudly now, and now, proudly. Yeah. And yeah. as you say, the, the, the quote of her saying she'd never heard of Angela and by her and her coach was somewhat damning because she Which, must live in a bubble if she doesn't understand, haven't heard of that. Substance before. Which put them in the court case, by the way, because, because yeah. they also did a lie detector test, which the which CAS and anti-doping mm. notoriously don't give much credence to, at the best of times. But yeah. <laughs> it's funny in the CAS decision, they say the lie detector test, you know, was not not persuasive either way, and it's a weak argument in support of Houlihan, and also is undermined by the fact that Houlihan herself said she didn't know what Nandrolone was. So how could she do a, a lie, lie detector test and then deny using it? Right. So actually, it came back to. Yeah. to bite her in a sort of sneaky way. So, yeah, in the end, when you read the Cass decision, it's it's very strong. Um, there are times when Cass actually look like they're being stern <laughs> yeah. in the language, you know, and you don't often mm. see that in a, ju- ju- in a legal <coughs> opinion, but mm. they are pretty resoundingly 
dismissive of Houlihan's claim. So mm. the Let's Run guys ended up asking me, like, guilty or innocent, like dope or not? And I was like, definitely not innocent by virtue of a pork burrito. Right. And therefore guilt doping. Like, that's that's the way the system works, you see, and that's not a... It's not a definitive answer, but that's no. the, the system demands it. I think what's interesting about that, and just to r- r- sort of um, wind up now, but you've had a look at this case. It's always fascinating with, with your expertise and your knowledge and your understanding of some of the terms that they've used to be able to look at this in, in depth and to say, yeah, they've actually done a good job here, that this the doping war is not by, being waged by a whole bunch of palookas on the one side, which is WADA, and a whole bunch of experts on the other side, which are the athletes and their doctors. Actually, there is a lot of good work being done by the World Doping um, Authorities, and therefore people like Shelby Houlihan, the evidence suggests, and it is thorough evidence, that she is guilty of taking a doped substance because they've done their job. And that's, yeah, that's, you have that's to confidence give credit building. to where it's due. And I mean, you know, the Athletics Integrity Unit was that unit set up specifically in this sport. They've caught a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, we've got Olympic marathon champions that have been done. We've got world record holders who've been caught on the track. Uh, the 3,000 steeplechaser, the women's mm. record breaker. So they, they are catching people. And yeah. so Which there's encouragement in that. I, I get, I mean, it's not encouraging to have dopers caught. <laughs> But it's a, it's a reminder of reality more than anything. But when they're not being caught, I'm more worried because yeah. you know it's not clean. <laughs> it's not black or white. There's like shades of gray here. You can't look at sport and say, oh, you know, there's no cases. It must mm. be clean. That's a ridiculous. We've learned through decades of mm. hard experience that that's never the case. Yeah. So you do have to give them credit for it. I don't think all sports can claim that same credit. I think there yeah. are some that are doing it much better than others. But in this instance, you, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you can, well, ne- again, there's only two or three people who know. Yeah. But this, the system is, Maybe the only system one. is, yeah, possibly. Yeah. No. The system has run its course in, and you know, the thing is, um, I've su- subsequently heard from the, the guys at Let's Run that Houlihan's team has some responses. They believe they've got some evidence and support. Well, that's, that's what Cass was for. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if, if there is a now, <coughs> excuse me, exactly. So they might well have more to offer in support, but um, you know that you had to you had to convince two people at CAS, mm. and that was the opportunity to do it. So, so two out of three judges, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So right. the way it works is each party nominates a person, which mm-hmm. means the CAS decision is almost always split one-one. <laughs> Yeah. And then there's a third independent who pretty much decides which way it goes. Okay. Which you can also argue is not a perfect system. No. Because you, no. you, I mean, sometimes you see, so if you ever see a, a 3-0 victory at Cass, it's an absolute spanking. Yeah. <laughs> because it means you've lost your own person. <laughs> so, so this one yeah. was 2-1. And Hulahan will, um, will protest it, I believe. Yeah. And maybe at what that point it? they would have found more evidence. The Let's Run guy said to me, what would I do if I was her? I said I'd hire private investigators to go undercover into farms because you see the whole argument for her is reliant on the possibility that nandrolone can end up in a pork burrito and she fails to show that so she needs to go she needs to get private detectors into those farms and have them do effectively an expose of farming practice and hopefully discover uncastrated that, boars. that uncastrated boars are being a and, and that have to be fed the wrong kinds of food because mm. that's what tra- that's what changes that carbon isotope ratio right that have to she'd have to get evidence of the feeding practices 
and she'd have to get evidence that the checks and balances mm. you know because it did it did by the way strike me as odd that they were so comfortable with McLean's confidence in the system <laughs> you know it's like saying we have checks yeah. and balances to ensure that no accountant ever commits fraud well that means fraud doesn't happen well no because people will always try and cheat the system so yeah. so he 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 seemed very sure that there would never be a case of an uncastrated boar that there would never be a case of a, a boar eating a high soy diet instead of corn and as i say his his opinion was never challenged so the court had to believe mm. that but i i would so i would have tried to undermine it's still highly likely if his evidence was if his evidence was all wrong as you've already said that the type of um of of the test yeah. and the type of stuff they found in there was not consistent with the food anyway i mean he ended up giving mm. the the headlines when the decision came out because he testified that the likelihood and i forget exactly what it was but of of eating the meat of an uncastrated boar was about one in 10,000. Mm. And then to that, you've got to add, you've got to eat enough of it at the right time and be tested the morning after. <laughs> when you start adding up the probabilities, the probability of it being an accident is so <laughs> tiny. Exactly. But even, even with one or two cases, you yeah. start to say no. So anyway, point is... She's got the bloody knife a, in her hand. Yeah. It's, a strong, it's a strong decision, and I think it's the right one based yeah. on everything in that, yeah. in that document. Yeah. Well, don't forget, you can uh, let us know what you think about the Shelby Houlihan case, uh, particularly an American issue, but uh, lots of other stories around about that. And I've seen some interesting stories uh, across various different platforms on this very story, and some of them we've discussed, and some very knowledgeable and influential people have asked lots of uh, questions and doubted her innocence and doubted her guilt and all sorts of things. So it is one of those stories in the in the world of, of doping, which has uh, been interesting because it's been so hard fought by both. Both sides, but uh, I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. I hope that you, uh, those of you, are watching the cycling. As you, the tally is on at the moment. We're going to rush home and uh, probably watch that now. But don't forget, you can let us know what you think about our talks today about uh, Shelby Hulihan on Sports SciPod is our Twitter feed, and of course, Ross, of course, is on Twitter as well as myself. Let us know what you think. But from us for now, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at Sports SciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.